Alright, so let's, let's look at this week in the Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11, and then we'll begin to discuss it. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when a tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you, I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone. Him only shall you, you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. So what we see in this passage is the temptation of Jesus Christ. And what I want to talk about is the biblical doctrine of temptation. But before we get into that, I want to point out some things that I think are very interesting when comparing the temptation of Jesus by the devil and the temptation of Eve by the devil. Okay, uh, The first temptation... Uh, that Eve uh, was tempted with by Satan was with hunger, physical hunger. The same thing Jesus was tempted with. Satan tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, Genesis 3.6 says this, that Eve saw the tree was good for food. She saw the tree was good for food in Genesis 3.6. And Jesus, being human as well as deity, uh, was very hungry after a 40-day fast. I mean, who wouldn't be hungry after not eating for 40 days straight? Uh, so, Satan used the natural desire for food that Jesus had and that Eve had to tempt them to sin. Satan asked Eve if God said she shouldn't eat from the tree. And in doing so, he was trying to put doubt in Eve's mind as to what God had said and what he wanted her to do. And it worked with Eve. Eve chose to take the, the, the fruit that was looked good for the eyes for food, and she ate of it. And she sinned against God in the process. Now, Jesus obviously had the ability to turn rocks into bread. He's the Son of God. He can do those things. He has the power to do those things. But whose will is He supposed to be doing? His or the Father's? The Father's will. That's right. His Father's. And it wasn't His Father's will for Him to turn rocks into bread? No, and we know this because of the way Jesus replied. That in doing so, he would be putting the Lord God to the test. And our main, our, our main purpose, our main reason for living is not fulfilling our physical hunger in any way they want. It is to obey God no matter what the cost to us, even if it costs us waiting to eat or not eating at all. So in both situations, Satan was using physical hunger to try to get Eve and or Jesus to step out of, outside of the Father's will and disobey him. Eating itself is not sinful. Eve even admitted in, 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 in Genesis that she could eat of any other tree, just not that one tree. And Jesus eating would not be sinful because he eventually ate again. But it wasn't the right timing for him to eat. 
And he knew that. Then Satan says to Eve, in Genesis 3-4, you will not surely die if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is very similar to something that Satan said to Jesus with his second temptation in Matthew 4-6. And Satan said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Satan was trying to get both Eve and Jesus to put their lives on the line to obey him instead of God. Eve obeyed Satan and she died, just as God said she would. She died spiritually at that very moment because she was separated from God because of her sins. Her relationship with God was broken the very moment she sinned. And she began to die physically because, of the, because due to her sin, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, which is where the Tree of Life was. And the Tree of Life is what gave them access to living physically forever. So, but Jesus didn't obey God, didn't obey Satan. He obeyed God instead. In fact, Jesus stated that if he would have thrown himself down and called upon angels, that he would have been testing or tempting God. Not tempting, uh, not tempting the Father in the sense that tempting him to sin, but tempting him in this, for, tempting him in that sense is impossible. For the Father cannot be tempted to sin, as we'll look at here in a few minutes in James 1. But tempting him in a sense that he's testing him to punish him if he were to sin. That's what every sinner does when they sin. They're testing God to punish them. And in some cases, in fact, probably in most cases, uh, God doesn't, doesn't punish them right away. He delays his judgment. He delays his wrath. He gives them space to repent. And this goodness of God should lead them to repentance. But in some situations, people test God and they fail. Take Ananias to fire, for example. They tested God. God didn't give them very much time to repent, did he? He struck them down dead. Uh, you know, so that we have to, you have to see what we're doing here. When, when, when people sin, they are tempting God. They're testing God to punish them right away. And he has the right and the authority to punish them right away if he wants to. That's why we should never be involved in the sin at all. So, testing God is a sin. Stepping out of God's perfect will is a sin. Okay? What Satan and if you go back to Genesis chapter three again for the third temptation of Eve, we, in verse five, Satan says, "For God knows, on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil." Now, the third temptation, the devil tempts Satan to become tempts Eve to become prideful. He was tempting her to try to be like God, just like Satan did with his sin. Let's turn to Isaiah 14 for a second to see what uh, it's got to say about this. Isaiah 14 and uh, verse 12. So Satan brings his temptation to Eve. He tempts her to eat, fulfill a natural desire unlawfully. Uh, he lies to her and, and gets her, tries to get her to put her life on the line. And now we see he's trying to get her to become just like him, to follow in his footsteps when it comes to his relationship to God. So Isaiah 14 and verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
But listen what really does happen. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Then who, those who see you will gaze you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of its, of its prisoners? And so he's trying to tempt Eve to become my God. But who is the only person that has the authority and the ability and the wisdom and the deserving of this place of being a God? God Himself. He's the only one wise enough. The only one powerful enough who uses power wisely and rightly. The only person deserving of such a position is Him. Not Satan and not Eve. But I want you to realize this. Every time someone says no to God and yes to sin, they're trying to become a little God in their lives. They're saying to God, No, God, you can't have control over me. I'm going to have control over me. I'm going to be the God of my life. But in the end, they'll find out what Satan found out, that they're not God. And if they don't repent and trust in Him and let Him be God in their lives, they will be in the same place He's at. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades or Gehenna. That's really the final resting place, the lake of fire and its hell. And now the devil did the same thing uh, to Jesus. There's something very similar here in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now who is presently the ruler of the kingdoms of this world? Who's the present ruler? Satan. That's right. According, according to John 12.31, Second uh, Corinthians four four, and Ephesians two two, the kingdoms of this world are presently under Satan's influence. I'll give you those again. It's uh, John twelve thirty one, Second Corinthians four four, and Ephesians two two. The kingdoms of this world are presently under Satan's influence. But who will be the ruler of this kingdom eventually? Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. So basically, Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. He's saying, listen, man, don't go to the cross. Come on, don't, don't be beaten and bruised by, your own, by lawless men, these, these people who I'm, I'm basically in control of. Don't do that. Don't go the hard way. Go the easy way. Just bow down and worship me right now, and I'll give you the kingdoms right now. He was offering him a shortcut. But if he did, if Jesus would have done that, Whose will would he have been doing? The devil's will. God forbid he does the devil's will. He didn't take the shortcut. He did the Father's will. And the Father's will, purpose, and plan wasn't that he not die on the cross. That he does die on the cross. Because through his atonement, through his sacrifice, the whole world might be saved. He was a sacrifice for sins. A propitiation for sins. And whoever believes in him, turns from their sins, and follows him, might be fellow heirs of this kingdom that will be given to him from the Father. So in, this, so in this way, the Father was pleased, as Isaiah 53 says, He was pleased to allow His Son to be beaten and bruised by lawless men, that, he, that all might be saved, and that many will actually be saved. Many will actually be saved. So one day, Christ will be the literal King over all the earth, and God the Father will put all things under His feet, except Himself. That we saw last week. All things He put under His feet, except the one who puts them under His feet, God the Father. So I just thought it was interesting the way that Satan tempted Eve and Jesus were very, very similar. 
It shows you he doesn't have any new tricks up his sleeve. But we need to be aware of his, his, his old tricks. He's been around for a long time. He, we, I've been around for 32 years. He's been around for six to 10,000 years. Long time. You get pretty smart in that amount of time. Okay? All right, so let's, let's start out. When we talk about temptation, let's start out by defining what it is. We have to really define our terms to, to communicate effectively. And here's my definition of temptation. Okay? Temptation is when an opportunity is presented to the mind to disobey God. So when an opportunity is presented to the mind to disobey God. That's what temptation is. Temptation is not causation. Temptation is influence. Influence. Remember when we talked about free will maybe about three or four weeks ago. We said that free will does not mean the absence of influence. There's influence both ways. From God, you have the conscience that's given to you by God. You have the law of God written upon your heart. You have the Holy Spirit influencing you. You have the Word of God influencing you. You have Christian preachers influencing you. But the other side, you have the world, the flesh, and the devil influencing you. There's always influence. The question is, which influence are you going to obey? That's the opportunity. So it's not only an opportunity to, to disobey, it's an opportunity to obey God. That's what temptation is. An opportunity to obey God. And who knows how many times, we don't, we, we, I'm speaking from silence here, but who knows how many times Adam and Eve actually obeyed God when they're tempted to eat from that tree before they finally actually disobeyed Him. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18, it says this, Therefore in all things He, Jesus, had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered, being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. So the reason why Jesus is able to aid us, personally, and sympathize with us when we're tempted, is because He was tempted Himself. In the same way we're tempted. Okay? But Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin. So once again, temptation is not causation, it's simply influence. Okay? Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16, says something very similar to what I just read. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. So, Jesus is able to sympathize us because He was made in all points and in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, once again, Jesus was tempted and didn't sin. And because He's tempted in all points as we are, He's able to help us and give us grace in our time of need. And when we have that time of need, that time of temptation comes, what should we do? Go boldly to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. The grace that we need, the strength we need. He is able to aid those who are tempted. So temptation itself is not sin. And we're all tempted constantly because we live in a sinful world where temptation is all around us. Uh, and, and that's really God's will. God's will is not to be in some bubble where we don't reach out to the world. It's to be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that saying. To be in the world, but not of the world. That's what God's will is for us. To overcome temptation. To realize it's going to come. So there's constant opportunities to sin. And we should never have this mindset that we are above sin or that we no longer have the ability to sin because temptation is always there 
lurking, creeping, wanting to drag you down. So don't get this idea that you're above sin or that temptation that could come or you're some kind of superman that, you're not, that, you, that you can't be tempted any longer or you can't fall any longer. Yes, you can fall. If you couldn't fall, there wouldn't be all these warnings in Scriptures not to fall. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, the Bible says. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's the Scripture. And those warnings aren't some empty warnings. They're real warnings. And that's uh, 1 Corinthians 10.12 and Hebrews 3.12 I just quoted. 1 Corinthians 10.12 and Hebrews 3.12. So living a life of holiness or obedience is not a one-time decision or choice that you made in the past when you became a Christian. It's not a one-time decision or choice that you made since becoming a Christian. Like a second work of grace, some people might call it. It's an everyday choice you make. A multiple times daily choice you make. Every time you're tempted, choice you make. You must always be on your feet. The devil wants you to relax and say, yeah, I'm doing great. And he's got you. He's got you right where he wants you. Because the moment you let down your guard, the very moment temptation will come and you will fall. Then comes the guilt and the feelings of condemnation because you've just sinned against God. And you sit there and wonder yourself, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, you let your guard down. That's how it happened. You became prideful in your heart. That's how it happened. The devil wants you to let your guard down, but don't do it. 1 Peter 5.8 says this. Very strong exhortation for the church here. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be self-controlled. Be watchful. That's what those words mean. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, the devil himself may never actually tempt you. But he has a third of the angels who are obeying his command. Okay, so don't think that every time you're tempted, you're tempted by the devil himself. He's not omniscient like God is. He's not everywhere at one time like God is. He may tempt you, but chances are he's probably working on some people who are a little higher up than us. Okay? Because uh, he, he's, he's smart. He wants to work from the top down. He takes down what's one on top, a religious leader, Christian leader. You know, it's going to affect a lot of people. A domino effect is going to happen. Okay? Uh, so, there's one thing to be aware of there. As your influence grows, the higher on your devil's hit list you become, the more watchful you need to be, the better chance you have of falling. And the greater your fall will be. And the more impact your fall will have if people find out what happened to you. So we need to always be watchful. And keep in mind, the devil may have a loud roar. We've all heard lions roar, I think, through the videos we've watched. But the devil has no teeth and no claws. In fact, I would say this. You have the devil's teeth in your hands. You have the devil's claws in your hands. He can't hurt you unless you let him. He can't bite you. He can't devour you unless you give in to temptation and allow him to do so. So when you picture a devil, picture a lion that has no teeth and you have his dentures in your hand. No claws, he's been declawed. But you have the ability to give him his claws back if you give in to temptation. If you give in and sin. Now he can hurt you. Now he can hurt those who are around you because of the influence you may have over top of them. So he can't make you sin. He can only tempt you to sin. And like I said, temptation is not causation. Temptation is influence. 
Now, there are many times that Christians that I've run into confuse temptation with sin. So it's a very important distinction here. And I'm going to talk about this just for a second. You can have a temptation in your mind, a thought temptation that just pops into your mind all of a sudden, and that thought temptation itself is not sinful. Okay? Something that you didn't produce willfully in your mind, it just pops in there. When I first became a Christian, I had had many girlfriends in the past, that's my own shame, and I'd be turning on the radio and a song would come on and it would remind me of them. And all of a sudden, the thought of them would pop in my head. And I had to take that thought captive. Maybe I'd turn the radio off and take captive. Now, I didn't sin in that process. But I had tempted to sin in the process. So you can have thoughts, and not every thought in your mind that's maybe a bad thought is actually sin. It can be a tempting thought. Uh, you can be tempted to do something that you shouldn't do. But then having that thought itself is not a sin. It's submitting to that thought, willfully submitting to that thought, that you have sinned against God. Or maybe you'll have a thought to have a sinful thought. That thought to have a sinful thought is itself not sinful, but giving in to the thought to have a sinful thought, that is sinful. So we need to make sure we're understanding. I, I've talked to Christians many times who say, yes, I sin every day, and they'll talk to me about their sin is, and I say, listen, that sounds more like temptation to me. That doesn't even sound like sin. So we just need to be careful we make right distinctions about these things. Uh, so submitting to these thoughts, or agreeing with these thoughts even before acting out on them, would be sinful. So agreeing with these thoughts, submitting to these thoughts, dwelling on these thoughts, would be sinful, even if you don't act out on them. Because we know that hatred is the same as murder, lust is the same as adultery in God's sight, uh, so God will judge our thoughts and the motivations of our heart. So this is a very crucial distinction. As long as the person who's tempted with these kind of thoughts it's taking that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, like 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. They have not sinned. They have not sinned. Where does temptation come from? Well, it comes from three sources. The trinity of sin. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It does not come from God. Temptation it can come from outside of you, the world. It can come from inside of you, the flesh. And it comes from the spiritual realm, demonic forces. Let's look at James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And I think what you'll see in this passage, you'll see a distinction that James makes, that I was just making, between temptation and sin. Okay? James 1, I'll start in verse 12. It says, uh, Blessed is the man who endures temptation... For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So we see many things in this passage. There's a very crucial passage about this doctrine of temptation. First, we see that you are blessed when you endure temptation. When you endure it. You know, oftentimes when I was a new Christian, temptation was so strong, I asked God to take it away. And God told me no. 
that God wanted me to endure it. He wants me to become disciplined, trained as a good soldier in God's army. Uh, so it's not simple to pray for God to take temptation away because he can't take it away, but he wants you to endure a temptation and be blessed in doing so. You're blessed when you don't give in to it. That was, that's what enduring means. So after enduring temptation and being approved, which means making it to the end, that you're endured temptation, you're being approved, you made it to the end, then you'll receive the crown of life. We also see that when we are tempted, that we are not tempted by God the Father, for he, for he can't be tempted by evil, and he tempts no one. Does this mean that God can decree or ordain sin? Does this mean that God is ultimately behind every sin that's ever been committed? Does it mean that God gets glory out of sin in and of itself? How can any of those three things be possible if God can't be tempted by sin and attempts no man? Because behind every temptation, if God is decreeing and ordaining all things that's ever come to pass, must be God. And therefore, God is tempting people to sin. And this is just, this is just one passage why Calvin can, can possibly be true. Their definition of sovereignty couldn't possibly be true because God tempts no man. And the only, the only response I've ever heard to this is that they'll say, well, man actually does a tempting God just behind him. Well, that makes no sense to me because if, if, I, if I'm a ventriloquist and I have a dummy on my lap and I say something mean to John, should John get mad at me or get mad at the dummy? The dummy. Yeah. He should get mad at the dummy. Right? No, that's what Calvinism says. He should get mad at me. I'm the source of the dummy. So the problem is not the dummy. If Calvin is the truth, we're all just dummies. And the great ventriloquist, the god of Calvinism, is making us do everything. Which would make him, whether they want to admit or not, the author of sin. But he himself can't even tempt people to sin. He himself is not tempted by any sin. How could he possibly decree or ordain all sins that have ever happened? That's an impossibility. Can't happen. So how are we tempted then? Well, we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Now, keep in mind that according to James right here, these desires in and of themselves are not sinful. They entice us, which means we're tempted by them. Okay, But they themselves are not sin. They are temptation. We are enticed by them. It is giving into these desires in an unlawful way, a way that God has not allowed, that is sinful. Fulfilling your, fulfilling your desires in a way that God has forbidden would be sinful. Go back to Eve again. Eve is hungry. Is being hungry sinful? Is eating sinful? But could Eve eat in the Garden of Eden and be sinful? Yes, she did it. Could she eat in the Garden of Eden and fulfill that hunger and not sin? Yes. Could Jesus, when he was done his 40 days fast, could he eat after that and not sin? Could he eat and sin? Yeah, he could have turned the stone into bread like the devil told him to, and then he would have sinned. So we see it's fulfilling a natural desire in an unlawful way. In an unnatural way. The word translated desire here in verse 14, the same word used in Luke twenty-two fifteen where Jesus talks about his great desire to eat the, last, eat the Passover with his disciples, this Last Supper, a great desire he had for them, to eat with them. So desire in itself couldn't be sin, because 
Jesus is desiring in Luke 20.15, which means he would be a sinner. That desire in itself is sin. It's the same word also used in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, where Paul talks about his great desire to see the saints at Thessalonica. Now, is he sinfully desiring to see them? No, he just desires out of love to see them. It's like Jesus desired out of love to have this last supper with his disciples. So desire, once again, spoken of James 1, is not sinful in and of itself. So sinning is sometimes defined as this. Fulfilling natural desires in an unlawful way. Fulfilling natural desires in an unlawful way. Take the desire to drink, for example. It can be filled in an unlawful way by drinking poison and killing yourself. It can be filled in an unlawful way in becoming a drunkard. It can be filled in a lawful way by drinking water, juice, milk. You fulfill desire to drink. The desire to drink in itself is not sinful. How you fulfill desire can be sinful or it cannot be sinful. Uh, the desire to eat can be fulfilled by becoming a glutton. Or it can be fulfilled by eating properly. Eating things that are healthy for you. It can be fulfilled by eating things that are really bad for you. And harming yourself. The desire for intimacy with someone of the opposite sex can be fulfilled through fornication, which would be sin. Or it can be fulfilled by naturally marrying someone of the opposite sex who God's commanded you to marry or called you to marry, and fulfilling that desire in a lawful way that God's intended within the boundaries God has provided. Let me give you an analogy to help you understand what I believe James is trying to say here. Let's take a fish for an example. Fish like to eat worms. Fish have a desire to eat. Is the desire to eat wrong for a fish to have? Okay, now, keep in mind, we're comparing a fish who's an amoral being to us who are moral beings, so there's not going to be every correlation here. But the fish has a desire to eat. Is eating a worm wrong for a fish to do? But should a fish, if it cares about itself, eat a worm that's on a hook? No. No, it shouldn't eat a worm that's on a hook. So eating the worms, or eating in general, is natural for a fish to do. Just like us, it's natural to fulfill the natural desires we have in a lawful way. But for the fish to eat a worm on a hook would be to its own detriment, wouldn't it? It's going to die, fried up for some good dinner. Right? Right? Plus, what's it over to us? If you fulfill natural desires in an unlawful way, the worm on the hook, you might be fried up someday. Very sobering thought. Not a fish fry. In hell. So we need to be careful we're not giving in to these natural desires and fulfilling them in an unlawful way. So when you sin, it brings forth spiritual death, as we see in James 1. Spiritual, not physical death, but spiritual death. Physical death, as I said before, is a result of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, not having access to the tree of life, because we're in Adam and Eve's posterity. We get to the end of the Garden with them, and therefore we don't have access to the tree of life. And since the flood... No one has access to the tree of life. There's no angel needed to guard it because it's gone now. It's gone. So we're all going to die physically because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But we die spiritually because of our own personal individual sin. And we shouldn't think, friends, that just because we have become born again, if you have, that you can't die spiritually again. Don't think that. You must persevere at the end to be saved. Okay, now there are four ways that I can think of that temptation can come into your life. Four ways that temptation can come into your life. One is through your eyes. Through your eyes. 
through the eye gate. Okay? Be careful what you look at. Be careful what you watch. I'm going to tell you this, friends. Things I watched when I was 18, 19 years old that were sinful, it's still up there in my brain. I still have to deal with it. Don't do that. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you look at. Ears is the second way. Be careful what you hear or listen to. Now, I watched recently They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll. It's a documentary. That's actually called a rockumentary. Uh, that talks about how demonic influences had over rock and roll music, over secular music. I used to sing along with these songs, and I could still sing along with them today if I wanted to. And we need to be careful what we put in our ears, what we're listening to, what we're hearing. It stays in there. The devil has a subtle way of influencing you to get him to do what, you, what he wants you to do. So we've got the eyes, the temptation can come into your life through your eyes, through your ears. Through demonic suggestion, through thoughts. Demonic suggestion, through thoughts. People forget about this sometimes. Something pops into your mind that you would have never thought of yourself. Let me give you a personal example. Okay, Something that I experienced a couple of years ago. We were in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida, preaching at spring break. And my grandpa lives on the sixth floor of a condo. I was out there on the... On the uh, on the balcony, all of a sudden, I had a thought. What if I jumped off of here? That didn't come from me. That didn't come from my eyes, my ears, or my flesh. That came straight from the demonic forces. They wanted me to kill myself. I would never think about that on my own. But these things can happen as well. So we need to be careful what we're listening to and who we're listening to. And then the fourth thing is memory of past sinful things you've done. Now, the good thing is, for children, you haven't done a lot of past sinful things yet. You have a better start than I had, that's for sure. I wasn't raised in a Christian family. But the memory of past... Your, your brain is just a great computer, it's just a magnificent creation of God. Everything you've ever done is still up there. Everything you've ever seen is still up there. It's a matter of triggering it. And sometimes association will trigger these things. Remember I talked about that music before? Music triggered but this association I had with someone, it triggered it and made me remember it. So we need to be careful what we're thinking about. You know, the Bible says we need to forget what's behind and press on toward the goal. Forget those things that are behind. So we must be careful what we feed ourselves through our eyes, through our ears, through trying to remember things in the past. We should forget those things. So put them aside. Because you are what you eat. Heard that saying, right? You are what you eat. You came to bars, you become a fat person. Overweight, out of shape. You eat good food, you'll be in shape. You are what you eat. You know, the old Popeye song. Popeye had this picture of a, a, a cartoon named Popeye. He was big and strong because what, what did he eat? Spinach. Yeah. There's a little bit of truth in that, even though it's a cartoon. If you're constantly feeding your eyes and feeding your ears a steady diet of sinful things, you will be a steady sinner. If you're constantly feeding your eyes and your ears a constant diet of sinful things, you will be a steady sinner yourself. At the least, you'll have a lot of temptation that you shouldn't have had in the first place if you were to control what comes before your eyes and your ears. If you're constantly dwelling upon your past sins, you will constantly be sinful as well. 
forget those things. Press on toward the goal. And just like the ultimate source of all good is God, the ultimate source of all temptation is Satan. The first one who was the first one who sinned. The one who brought sin into the cosmos. Into creation, because Satan himself is a created being. Now I'm talking about the most important part in my mind of this whole thing is how to have victory. How to have victory. The first thing we need to realize is the most important step in my mind. Most professing Christians don't get this. So get this in your head. Listen very carefully. Realize that victory is possible all the time. All the time. If you don't realize this first part, you're defeated already. You're defeated already. You must not even try to risk it because according to you, you're eventually going to do it again. John 5.14, Jesus said to the man who he healed who was lame for 38 years, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. In John 8.11, the woman caught in adultery thrown at Jesus' feet. He said to her, go and sin no more. Now, did Jesus really mean this? Or did he mean go and sin some more? Go and sin a little more. It's okay if you sin a little bit more. It's okay if you sin every day. It's not okay. Galatians 5.16 Says, if you walk according to the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. My friends, do we take God at His word? Let's take Him at His word then. If you walk according to the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. First Corinthians ten thirteen, I think, is a very important scripture. I'm going to read it. In this issue, listen very carefully. There's a lot of things to discuss in this this, this scripture. No temptation is overtaking you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But when temptation, but with the temptation, will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So let's look at the things that it says here. It says, the temptation that comes into your life is not some new thing. It's common to man. Not only that, Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, so it was common to him too. Sure was. In fact, if you look at Matthew 4 closely, there's things Jesus was tempted to do that we can't be tempted to do. So his temptation went above and beyond ours. We can't turn stones into bread. We can't call on the angel and we want to and tell him to catch us when we jump off a cliff. We can't do that. So he was tempted even more than we were. So the temptation we have, sometimes we get to think, man, woe is me. I must be the only one in the world going through this. Not true. When I was a new Christian, I had that thought. And then I read it and said, wait a minute. Not woe is me. Press on through. Not woe is me. Press on through. And what's the crux of temptation here, according to this verse? God is faithful. Is God faithful? Will He allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear? has to do with ability there. So every temptation God allows to come into your life, he gives you the ability to bear it. He doesn't give you more than you can handle. Now, let's qualify this now. You can put yourself in a situation where you give yourself in a temptation you're not supposed to be in in the first place. But that's your fault, not God's fault. If you're walking in God's ways, you're walking according to the Spirit, He will not bring temptation to your life you're not able to bear. Of course, we must do it in strength, in His strength, not in our own strength. 
And then the third thing here, or the last thing here I want, I want to point out is that when temptation comes, what does it say at the end of verse 13? There is a way of escape. Every time. God provides a way. The question is, are you going to take that way, which may be harder than taking the way of giving in temptation. Who said that, giving, that not giving temptation is going to be easy? No one said that. It's probably going to be a lot harder to go the way of escape, which is the narrow way, constricted way, than to go the broad way of giving into temptation. But just because something's easy, does that mean that you should be doing it? Of course not. If the easy way out was the best way, why didn't Jesus bow down to Satan and get a kingdom right there? He took the hard way. And his hard way was a lot harder than our hard way. So you may be able to bear it. As I said in Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through our own strength. Or do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Very crucial point there. Through Christ. 1 John 2.1 Get the mindset here of a Christian here. Get the mindset here. In 1 John 2.1 These things I write to you, little children, you may not sin. So 1 John, the whole reason John wrote that epistle... And so they won't sin. And what you know later on, he said something similar. He said, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. There must be a correlation there between those two things. Um, and he says, if you sin. Do you see that there? What does it have to do with? Possibilities. It has to do with possibilities. Does it mean that you have to sin? Or that you're going to sin eventually? It means, no, there's a possibility. You don't ever have to sin again. If there was no possibility, the whole reason for writing this epistle according to John would be worthless. He shouldn't even bother writing it. Writing it. 1 John 3.6 says, If you abide in Him, you will not sin. The question is, are you abiding in Him? If you're abiding in Him according to John 15, you'll produce much fruit. For apart from Him, you can do nothing. So abiding in Him is important. That's the crux of the issue. 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are a burden? His commandments are not burdensome. So we have temptation able to bear it. His commandments are not burdensome. It's a joy for the child of God to keep God's commandments. So we have to get this first point in our head when it comes to victory. We can't obey God all the time. To say you can't is to have defeat already. That's to have defeat already. Now, people may have a problem with this first point because, let's be honest, since becoming a Christian, we've all sinned. Most of us have probably sinned in the last week. But does that change the fact that we don't have to sin? Does that change, does that change the fact that we can't live every single day for the rest of our lives, every moment, in holiness? It doesn't change that fact at all. If everyone sinned every second of every day, it wouldn't change that fact. So we have to get this right. We have to get this first point right. The next step is to take control of our thought life. To take control of our thought life. You know, Second Corinthians ten five, I recorded a couple of times, says, "Take captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ." Every thought we must take them captive. You can just picture thoughts in your mind being little prisoners that escape. You say, ah, don't you, don't you go anywhere. Get back over here. Get back in this prison. 
You're captive to Jesus. My thought life is captive to Jesus. Philippians 4.8 says this. Check your thought life according to what Paul says here. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any, any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate or think upon these things. So think about your thought life for a second here. Is your, are your thoughts true? Or are you having lying thoughts about somebody? To the point where you actually lie about them. Are your thoughts noble? Are your thoughts just or righteous? Are your thoughts pure? Are they lovely? Are they a good report? Or do they have virtue or anything praiseworthy in them? If they don't fit into one of these categories, you shouldn't be thinking it. This is what our thought life should be like according to the Scripture. So we need to take control of our thought life. We need to look at Jesus' example in Matthew 4, the whole thing we're studying right now. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? What did he do? He quoted Scripture. You know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't know the Scriptures. So when temptation came, I was like, oh, should I give into it or not? Because I trained my body for so many years to sin every single day. Temptation came, ah, no big deal, give into it. It came, I will just give into it. I had nothing resisting me. I didn't care. I didn't have to think about God or Jesus or about living holy. I became a Christian. Those thoughts still popped in my mind because I didn't know the Scriptures very well. But I'll tell you this. If you fill your mind, you fill your heart with the Word of God, the Scriptures, your first inclination when temptation comes will be, no, the Bible says this. No, the Bible says this. Just like Jesus was. Psalm 119, verse 9 says this. Here's the question we should all be asking. How can a young man be pure? What's well, that? By living according to God's word. And verse 11 says this. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. How can a young man or a woman stay pure? By living according to his word. How do you live according to his word? By hiding it in your heart and you may not sin against them. That way, when temptation comes, no, the Bible says this. Not, yes, that sounds good. I'm going to give in to it. So you change your mind. Joshua 1.8 says this. God speaking to Joshua. Meditate on this law day and night, that you may be careful to do everything written in it. What are you doing when you just sit around and do nothing? What are you thinking about? Well, upon the Word of God. Get some scriptures on a note card. Take them with you. Get them in your heart. Give them in your mind. Train your brain to think proper, to love God with your brain and your mind. And in that, sense, that way, you take control of your thought life. You live pure. Like God wants you to. So meditating upon the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, putting the scriptures into practice, preaching the scriptures helps you to get them in your head too. So we need to follow Jesus' example by knowing the Scriptures. Hiding them in the heart, memorizing them. How many Scriptures do you have memorized? Ask yourself that question. How many do you have in your heart? How long have you been a Christian for? 
Why don't you have more memorized? Now, this is important. Is God's Word really important to you? You can hide it in your heart. That's what we must do. Next, we need to realize temptation will come and we need to know what to do with it. We look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. What do we need to do with temptation according to 1 Corinthians 10.13? Realize, first of all, you're not the only one going through this. It's common to man. Your temptation is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you tempt to what you're able to bear. And three, He provides a way out. So really, temptation comes. There's the way out. I'm taking it. This is not too hard for me to bear. God is faithful with me. He wants me to endure temptation. James 4, 7. A little nugget of truth here in James. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sounds like what Jesus did, isn't it? Submit to God, resist the devil, and what did he do? He fled. Now, did he flee after the first time? After the second time? Oh, so you overcome temptation the first time. Don't let your guard down say, hey, I'm good to go now. No, no. He may come back five or six more times right in the row. But you know what the most important part of James 4, 7 is? The first part. Submit to God. You fail to do that, you're going to resist the devil in your own strength and you're going to fail every single time. Submit to God. People forget that. People quote, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. What are you talking about, man? Submit to God first. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not the other way around. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Talks about a certain kind of temptation to sin and what we should do when we get that kind of temptation. This is in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So what you do when you're tempted sexually? You flee. Picture Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife was an adulteress at heart. Joseph was a holy man. Potiphar's wife came dripping with her tongue of honey, which Proverbs says to be beware of. And Joseph said, how can I sin against God and do this thing? That should be our heart. That should be our first motivation, not sinning at all. Is, hey, Christ loved me so much, how can I do this to Him? How can I do this to Him? And he ran out of there with no clothes on. So even if you have to run from this kind of stuff with no clothes on, you run from it with all your life, with all your heart. You run from it. So sometimes we need to flee from temptation. Romans 13, uh, verse 14, says this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no provision. Set up boundaries for your life. If you know this area over here is temptation that it's really hard, you might give into it. Don't go over there anymore. You know, when I first became a Christian, I had about 15 guys I went through basic training with, job training with, and we all went to the same base, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 
they were like what I called my blood brothers. We did everything together. I didn't, we went through things together that I went through with nobody else. They're my drunkenness buddies. They're my fornicating buddies. When I became a Christian, I couldn't hang out with them for a while. I had to give them up for about six months. But after that six months, I put that boundary up. I said, no, I'm going to stay in my room and read my Bible. I go out of my, my, my barracks room and go out to where they are. They're getting drunk and they're messing around with women. I'm going to do the same thing they're doing. So I put that boundary up. I said, no, I'm going to stay in here. I'm going to read the Bible. That's what I did. Well, you know, six months later, I'm built up and I'm strong enough. Now I can go to them and preach to them in the midst of their sin that I used to commit. So we need to have boundaries for ourselves. You know, there are some men who have had a problem with sin on the internet in their lives. But they're not willing to put a filter on the computer. They're not willing to limit their access to the computer, their time on the computer. They're not willing to have accountability. They're not willing to... I mean, God forbid, if your relationship with Christ means nothing, you throw the computer out. Trash it, if you have to. If you love Christ enough, we'll do that for Him. We'll put the right boundaries up. If you keep getting tempted, listen, look at your life. If you keep getting tempted in the same way, do something about it. Put some kind of boundaries up in your life so temptation will not keep on coming into your life. It's unnecessary. So we must have the right boundaries so we don't have provision for the lust of the flesh. In Matthew 5, 29-30, Jesus talks about if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. If your foot causes you sin, cut it off. That's talking about boundaries too. You know, I first became a Christian. I was dating a girl who said she was a Christian, but she was in sin with me before I became a Christian. And when I became a Christian, she was a professing Christian. I had to tell her, we're not doing this anymore. And after a while, she kept trying to tempt me to do these things. I said, you know what? We're done. I was engaged to her. She was going to be my wife. We had wedding plans made. She had her wedding dress bought. We had the, the uh, church planned out. We had everything planned out. Six months before we are going to get married now. I said, that's it. You are not the one for me. You're not a godly woman. You're not a home. You're bringing temptation into my life. Not godliness, but temptation. And I gave her up. And sometimes we'll have to do that. Because if our relationship with God means enough to us, that we want to live holy. We have to give up certain things that aren't profitable to our relationship with Him. So these, these are the ways we're going to deal with temptation when it, when it comes. Realize this, that if you don't endure temptation, as James 1.12 says, you will not receive the crown of life. If you can do it, Give it into it, and give it into it, and give it into it, and give it into it. You're not going to endure it, and you're not going to receive the crown of life. You're not going to persevere to the end. You're going to depart from the faith, be cut off, and fall away. You wither away as a branch that has no fruit, and is good for nothing to be thrown into the fire. So we need to deal with this issue. So James 24, I mean Matthew 24, 12, 13 says, In the last days, lawlessness will abound, because of this, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Will be saved. That's future tense now. Will be saved. Here's a saying I use for this issue. You don't have eternal life eternally until you step into eternity. You don't have eternal life eternally until you step into eternity. You've endured to the end. You've endured temptation. You received the crown of life. You finished the race. This is very important to you, friends. 
please hear this. If you sin, don't despair. If you sin, don't despair. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do. He's got you once. He got you to sin. Now he's got you to despair. Now you're wallowing in the mire. No, be like the prodigal son. Get out of the muck and mire. Go home to the father who's waiting for you. He'll clean you up. That's what you need to do. Get back up. Confess your sin. Repent of it. And go and sin no more. Don't let the sin that you've committed keep you down and despair. Remember 1 John 2 one says, If we sin, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He will not forgive them. No. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know if we're not abusing the grace of God, we can come back to Him and repent and confess and be cleansed again and not despair. So go, confess, repent. Go into the normal rate. Make no provision for the lust of flesh. Think about how you led up to this sin. Think about the things that happened along the way. And put up new boundaries for yourself. You're the man who's a Christian who's looking at porn on the internet. I guarantee you, most of the time he's not sitting there just thinking, well, I'm, a, I'm planning this on my list today. I'm going to plan to do this today. No, he drove down the road. He saw that billboard. Oh, he didn't take captive that thought. He went home, turned on TV. A bad commercial came on. Came on. He didn't turn a channel. He didn't take that thought captive. He's sitting up late at night now, doing some work on the computer. Something pops up. Click. Now, you see the path? You see the path he took? So he thinks about what happened. Because he didn't sit down that day and say, I'm going to look at porn today. He sits down and thinks about how this happened. How temptation came into his life. You know what? I know that billboard's there. I'm not going to look at it next time. I'm going to turn the channel when that commercial... Oh, I'm not going to, God forbid, get rid of cable altogether if you have to. I mean, jeez. Turn off the television and put God's Word before your eyes. Don't stay up late at night and do stuff on the Internet. Because that can cause unnecessary temptation in your life as well. If you don't have the necessary boundaries set up for that. Stay in prayer. Stay on your knees. Stay to the Word. Hide in your heart. Memorize it. Have intimate communion with God. That will stop you from sinning more than anything else. Intimate communion with God. Getting in your closet by yourself. I know sometimes big families you have a hard time getting some privacy. You have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Stay up to 2 o'clock at night in the morning. Get alone by yourself with God, friends. Don't think that your prayer together as a church here or your prayer together as a family at the dinner table or wherever you may pray in the morning together as a family that that takes the place of you personally getting alone with God. It doesn't. And I tell you, when I look at my, the past in my Christian life, the times where I've fallen to sin, it's because that is not taking priority. I'm not getting alone with God enough. And that will be the problem you will have. You're not getting along with God enough, you're going to sin. You're not getting along with God enough, you're going to sin. That's what's going to happen. Let me just tell you this. The more you overcome temptation, the less power, the less pull it has on you. When I became a Christian, I still had a temptation to be a drunkard and a fornicator. I can tell you with all honesty today, 
I have no temptation in either of those areas. Does that mean I let down my guard in those areas? No. That will come and bring temptation back. But it has less, no pull, no power on me anymore because I've overcome it. At the beginning of Christian walk, go get drunk, Kerrigan. I want to do it. I'm not going to do it. Go fornicate, Kerrigan. No, I, I want to do it, but I'm not going to do it. And I resisted, I resisted, I submitted to the Holy Spirit. I resisted, I resisted. And eventually, the temptation just kind of floats away. And no longer has any power or pull over me. I can go out in front of a bar and preach to the drunkards now. So the more you resist it, the, more you, the less you give into it, the less pull or power it has. But listen to this. The more you give in, the more power has it, the more pull has it, it increases and increases. And then you'll feel like, man, I can't stop this. Yes. You become a slave. But Christ came to break those chains. And even if that is your testimony, you can still break those chains through the power of Jesus Christ, through His Holy Spirit. So don't give in temptation, friends. Here's a summary. Temptation will come. Temptation itself is not sin. Temptation is influenced by causation. It will come. Beware. Be watchful. Be vigilant, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says. Be ready for that lion who prowls around. you got teeth in your hands. Don't give in to it. Take the way out. Look for the way out. Don't have this woe is me attitude. Live a life of victory. But if you sin, don't despair. Confess. Forsake. Make adjustments. Set up new boundaries if you have to. Live a life of holiness to God. Endure temptation. And in the end, according to James 1, you'll receive the crown of life. Okay. Does anyone have any questions? Things they want to add or objections? I just wanted to point out uh, when you look at the uh, this biblical view of temptation and uh, consider the Trinity, uh, the actual uh, looking at temptation actually proves that the doctrine of the Trinity is 100% true because uh, just say, for instance, the one is Pentecostalism. Say if uh, uh, God the Son, uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit was just different manifestations of the same personhood, right. same God and everything, then what it says in James 1, uh, uh, verse 13, God that God be. cannot be tempted. Right. But then in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says that Jesus was tempted in all points. Right. Uh, that totally disproves any uh, oneness Pentecostalism. Right. It totally supports the, uh, the Trinity. Yep. Because they are different in personhood. The personhood of God the Father cannot sin. Right. But uh, cannot even be tempted. And and uh, God the Son could have sinned, but chose not to, and was tempted. So the personhood was different in that in that situation. So right. that can only be supported by the doctrine of the Trinity. Amen. So. That's good. Good points. Kerrigan, I could you say um, something that was a blessing to me. Um, do not despair, you know, because we have an advocate with the Father. But um, is that a scripture? I know that at the part where it says we have, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But is there a scripture that says um, do not despair? And where is uh, that? Not that I can think off the top of my head. 
I just know that in, in the past, in my own life, I've felt the feelings of despair myself. Now, uh, I mean, obviously, as, as Christians, if we sin, we should have a hatred for it. And we should have a loathsomeness, a loathsomeness for ourselves because we did sin. But to sit there in despair and not confess and repent, get up and start walking again, is just what the devil wants. His whole goal is to get you to go to hell with him. And the way he does it is to get you to sin. And after he's gotten you to sin, to get you to not repent. And continue to endure to the end. So if, if he can do that, remember, if he's going to get you to sin, if you have sin, the next thing he's going to try to do, be watchful for this, wait for this. He's going to try to get you to feel hopeless. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. Cleansing and forgiveness. Something uh, I used to experience is that when I would sin, I would think, well, you know, I'm not going to repent right away. I'm going to meditate on what I've done and let some time pass and really decide if I'm really repenting. Right. And I let like several days go by before I finally repent. And uh, that, I think that was uh, Satan trying to get me to delay my repentance, to just put it off and, right. and, and do that. But, you know, we shouldn't do that. If, if you know, we're broken hard up about it right away, right. we should deal with it right away and not letting time pass because God forbid during that time period that you're, you're, you're waiting and delaying your repentance uh, God would allow you to die in your sin now it's hell for you for eternity right. because you delay I say don't delay right yeah. don't delay that's, that's, yeah it's backwards right. repent first and then think about what happened right and then make the boundaries right. set the right boundaries right. for it so it doesn't happen again right Yeah, I, I I would say that with that her situation, we don't know what's going on in her heart and mind. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's obviously a possibility that she was just tempted one day and she decided to give into it. But if you're living for Jesus and you're staying in prayer and had deep communion with Him, 
I mean, those things just don't happen overnight. You don't go from deep communion with God to just going back to your well, pigment. maybe one thing that should be treated as serious Right. As that. Everything, yes. Right. That's serious as that. Not yes. I would say living doesn't work like that. Yeah, it comes in a little bit. Yeah. Starts working and starts growing. Sometimes we don't realize it. That's true. Not that we don't realize it. No, right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it comes in uh, seductively, secretly. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes we don't realize it, though. That's what I'm saying. Oh, Sometimes we don't realize it. Because it's, it's, we're not we're not taking those thoughts captive. We're just kind of and then this big fall happens. Like when you guys like like Ted Haggard, stuff he was doing, or another guy Bishop A. Long's been accused of some things he, that he's doing homosexual things. If he did these things, I don't think he's on the trip in Africa with these with these missionary guys, these young guys, and think, well, I'm just going to be a homosexual now. You know, there must have been something in his life that progressed to that point. You know, so but we should treat every every temptation. As an opportunity, not only for a small fall, but for a great fall, yeah, it's going to lead to a, lead to a great, greater fall. Right. Right. Every sin is serious. Right. Every sin is you are departing from the faith with every sin, and you are separated from God with every sin. It needs to be taken that seriously, and you can't return. You can't return, but it has to be taken immediately. Return. But see that the slow fade idea. I can see how, like, say, you sin, a certain sin, and then you repent right away, and, and then all of a sudden you do the same sin again, and you repent right away, do the same sin again, repent right away, and you're not really dealing with the situation. Right. You're not really dealing with that, and that, and then really by doing that same repetitiveness, sinning, repenting, sinning, repenting, you are hardening your heart against that sin, and then you come to a point that's like, well, you know. Maybe that's not such a big deal anymore. And it always has been a big deal, but because you're hardening your heart against it, you're making it okay with yourself over repetitiveness. Uh, you know, that's why it's so important that every time you sin and then you repent to deal with it, put up the barriers, uh, make the changes that cut you up the hand. Uh, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, uh, figuratively speaking. Uh, that has to be done with every single occurrence and has to be taken that seriously. Uh, small fall, big fall, it's still fall. Still fall, and that fade—that's that's what happens with the fade. But it can happen just like that, because you could you could have that fall and say, "Well, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to give up." Okay. Satan, Satan just wants you to give up, and then you just okay, I give up. I'm going to go to the bars. I'm going to do what I want to do, and that's a total giving up and total total surrender to sin. Uh, that can happen, uh, but that's why that's why you have to take every single fall seriously. Right. Like every thought place does take every thought. Right. Right. Every thought counts because it's every thought, right. not just right. okay, I'm just going to drift. And like some thoughts are okay, some thoughts are Right. Every temptation is serious. Right. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and what that would actually, because I, you know, I, I prayed about that. Well, right. How does that actually interact? How does that? What does that look like? And so that little word picture you did, right. taking a little prisoner, right. and trying to get away. Right. No, no. Right. <laughs> right. Put it back. Amen. Yeah, I, I, I started picturing it that way when I, when I first became a Christian. It just really helped me to, yeah. to realize what's going on in my head. Yeah. These little rogue thoughts to try to get in there. And, uh, nope, you're going to be obedient to God, too. Yeah. I used to, uh, you know, it's tempted, I would take uh, my 
that's awesome. They throw the cross. And, and in Calvary Chapel, they had uh, a couple of teachers that used the uh, mind picture of you know, the blood of Jesus dripping on you and your sin, right? And um, but now I bring it to the throne, you know, because he's not on the cross anymore. His blood was shed. I've been washed and cleansed. And, and now we're growing in faith and sanctification. Uh, and now I come to his throne. And I, I seek his power to overcome the temptation. Right. And victory over the temptation. Because, uh, you know, just like uh, we learned today, if we, if we don't capture those thoughts, if we don't resist the devil, we don't resist the desires of, you know, in, inordinate desires of our flesh or the world, then those things are going to come and they're going to destroy and the devil's going to have his way and uh, you shipwreck your faith. Yeah, the other thing too is even uh, as you pointed out that you know, every time you're tempted to go to the throne, uh, still you're enduring the temptation. Uh, still you're you're having the discipline to to go to the throne. Uh, so still you're doing something. Uh, but you just go to the throne and, and you're asking for mercy, and then in His strength you defeat the temptation. <coughs> 